Well, as the coach of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish has always said, fight, 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 and never stop fighting, never give up, because uh, the fight is heating up, folks. It's getting, it's in the bottom of the ninth inning. <laughs> should, I, should I use a soccer metaphor? Nah, there's too many. Soccer has too much empty time, right? <laughs> Not counting the penalty time, empty time where the ball just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and nothing happens. And then maybe there's two or three goals for the whole game, right? Uh, we want action. We want lots of scoring, especially scoring for the good guys. Welcome, everybody. Pastor Eli James here. Of course, this is Eurofolk Radio. Today is January 1st, 2023. And this is Voice of Christian Israel. Haven't been able to get in touch with Pastor Martins. We'll see. Maybe we can work out something where he can do shows in a different area because uh, his area is subject to rolling blackouts where the uh, the white people get the blackouts and the black the black people get the whiteouts, right? <laughs> so, so all the white people have to endure all these blackouts created by the black government. But that's the way the world is, works these days. Okay, hold on. Uh, somebody's saying no sound. Okay. Am I live? Okay. All right. Should be uh, broadcasting. People in the chat room saying they're not hearing anything. Uh-oh. Okay. All right. I may have to change up, change things up. Okay. Good sound. Thank you. All right. I uh, I made some changes to my computer, which should not have affected the sound, but you never know because our sound quality is quirky. It's always been quirky, although we've been able to get on without any trouble. Since uh, Paul English, our our master webmaster, has uh, re- rebooted the whole system, redesigned it, etc. That was like uh, almost a year ago now, nine or ten months ago, and so we're still bearing the good fruit of that change. So uh, very good. Glad everybody can hear again. All right. So the subject of today's show is actually going to be the Book of Jubilees. We're probably going to be doing a multi-part series about this uh, on bloodlines because it's very, very important. Today is just going to be by way of intro. Thank you, Bram, Sussex man, everybody in the chat room. Thanks for the feedback because you never know with this broadcasting system we have. It may give us a false signal. So right now it's it's saying stream time and it's counting down the minutes I've been on, which is four minutes and 15 seconds so far. And it's got two VU meters, one for left and right, uh, which are showing uh, my sound in the yellow. With all those indicators, it should be broadcasting. But there's been times in the past when I've had those indicators all working and we haven't been able to come through. So like I say, it's computers. (laughs) So computers are like women. Sometimes they love you, sometimes they don't. Okay? And you never know when they're (laughs) going to love you and when they're not going to love you. You may have said something wrong and uh, you fried the circuit board, okay? So, but what I did was I enlarged the type size of my screen. So, because this article that I shared with you in the chat room 
is very, very small type. You know, the Book of Jubilees is a, uh, a hefty book, hefty-sized book. And the R.H. Charles version that we're looking at is uh, in very small type. So I pretty much doubled the, the size of the screen so I can read it better. But for now, I'm going to be reading from an article that I've been working on called Yahweh's Jubilee. And as we discussed this morning, we were talking about the feast days on uh, bloodlines. Yeah, on bloodlines, the feast days are very, very important. We're going to be focusing a lot on the feast days and how we're supposed to go about practicing them, especially the fall feasts, because the fall feasts prophesy the second coming. So, of course, none of the major churches teach this at all. Very, very few pastors of all Judeo-Christianity have any inkling that these feast days are actually prophetic and that we're supposed to comport ourselves accordingly, especially uh, if, uh, you know, if we want to get, get into the kingdom. And uh, we read the article by Bertrand Camperay this morning in which he stresses the importance of these feast days. Uh, he got the calendar wrong because he was relying on the Jewish lunisolar calendar. And uh, you know, we're going to be doing, uh, Brother Hebert is working on a, an article to correct all that. And so I'm sure he'll be doing a show about that re- very soon. But uh, he and I have also been doing research on the Jubilees. And the thing that's really struck me hard when I was doing the updates on the Mount Ebal and the date given for the entrance into Canaan land by Joshua and the Israelites being firm, very, very firm, 1406 B.C. So uh, we did some calculations, and we know that the number 70 is the number of judgment because the Judahites were forced to live in Babylon for 70 years before they were set free again. There was many other instances of 70 years of punishment, or even the number seven could be a year. The number seven is always included in prophecy, such in the book of Revelation. We have the 70 weeks of Daniel, okay? Daniel's 70 weeks, which is not necessarily a punishment, but a major event, namely after 70 weeks, Messiah shall be sacrificed on the cross. That's about the first advent, Daniel's 70 weeks. And we have the 70, uh, two, uh, the seven times punishment, there's the number seven, seven times punishment, uh, given to Israel in, uh, uh which book is it now? It's, uh, Leviticus chapter 26 which uh, the seven times, uh, seven times 360, which means 2,520 years prophetically from the day that the half-tribe of Manasseh was taken captive in 745 B.C. until the date that America was founded in 1776 A.D. So the number seven and the number 70 are very, very important in Scripture. So uh, here's how I begin this Yahweh's Jubilee article, which I'm going to try to publish on, on anglo-saxonisrael.com very soon. But it starts out by quoting the book of Jubilees. And it's uh, verses, uh, let's see, I don't have the numbers here, 
verses 20 and 21, but it's more than those two. Let me get started here. Let thy mercy, O Yahweh, be lifted up upon thy people, and create in them an upright spirit. And let not thy spirit of Belial rule over them to accuse them before thee, and to ensnare them from all the paths of righteousness, that is, to get us out of righteousness, so that they may perish from before thy face. But they are thy people and thy inheritance, which thou hast delivered with thy great power from the hands of the Egyptians. Create in them a clean heart and a holy spirit. A clean heart and a holy spirit. Kind of like what happened at Calvary. And let them not be ensnared in their sins from henceforth until eternity. And Yahweh said unto Moses, I know their contrariness and their thoughts and their stiff-neckedness. They're all naked, stiff-neckedness. And they will not be obedient till they confess their own sin and the sin of their fathers. So, wow, we have to confess the sin of our ancestors as well. You know, I haven't been doing that. Maybe I should. And after this, they will turn to me in all uprightness and with all their heart and with all their soul. Man, can't wait for that day. Now, listen. And I will circumcise the foreskin of their heart and the foreskin of the heart of their seed. And I will create in them a holy spirit Spirit. Isn't that what happened at Pentecost, ladies and gentlemen? That's exactly what happened at Pentecost. So here, the foreskin of the heart and the foreskin of the heart of their seed. This is New Testament stuff, folks. It's prophecy, which was fulfilled at Pentecost 33 A.D. And I will cleanse them so that they shall not turn away from me from that day unto eternity. And their souls will cleave to me and to all my commandments. And they will fulfill my commandments. And I will be their father and they shall be my children. And they shall be called children of the living God. Just so- sounds like the Old Testament and the words of Paul. And every angel and every spirit shall know, yea, they shall know that these are my children and that I am their father in uprightness and righteousness, and that I love them. Here, you can't get more exclusive about Israel than you can in a writing like this. It's the covenant message, folks, in the book of Jubilees. So I put the link in the chat room. I encourage you all to go there and read through that at your leisure. And uh, we're going to get started with this. I'm going to start reading from the uh, Charles introduction, which is actually very good. So let's go. And i got to scroll back up here. The Book of Jubilees, based on the version by R.H. Charles, in the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament, Oxford, Clarendon Press, 1913, with the archaic word forms modernized by Patrick Rogers. Okay, so... But we will have to do some updating, too, because he doesn't use the sacred names. So anyway, getting back to uh, the uh, Jubilees, I forgot. I left off with the year 1406 B.C. 
70 jubilees, that's 70 times 49, is 3,430 years. 70 times 49. The day that Joshua and the Israelites invaded Canaan land was in 1406 B.C. It was actually the first day of the year, the spring equinox of 1406 B.C. So if you subtract 1406 from 3,430, you get, guess what, folks? 2,024. So this judgment day of 70 jubilees is coming right up. However, we have one caveat here. Because whenever you go from B.C. to A.D., you cannot count the zero. So let's say 1406 B.C. plus 1406 will get you to 1 A.D. because there's no year zero. So you have to ignore the zero when you're going from B.C. to A.D., so the, the the fulfillment of the seventy the seventy jubilee periods is going to be in the year twenty twenty five. So get ready. The year twenty twenty five is going to be big. Okay, remember the Judahites went into captivity for seventy years for being disobedient to Yahweh, and now we're coming up to the seventieth jubilee. And uh, Brother Aber and I have been working on this problem for actually several years now, but we never had an exact, we couldn't get an exact date for the start. And so it's obviously 1406 B.C. because that is when the feast day calendar of the Israelites went, went into effect. It did not go into effect during their wanderings in the desert. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, but they did not have the wave sheaf. They did not have the grain for the wave sheaf offering. They didn't have any lambs to sacrifice for their uh, Passovers. They were given the Sabbath by Yahweh by him giving us manna so that we could rest and worship him every seventh day. But outside of that, there was no formal practice of the feast days. So the instructions for the feast day calendar were given by Moses during the 40 years wandering, but they were never instituted until Joshua entered into the promised land. Okay? So that's when the Israelites began their feast day calendar, and so that gives us a fixed date. When this happened, okay? So, the year 2025 is going to be a big one, folks. We've been expecting a lot of trouble. We've been getting a lot of trouble, thanks to the Rothschilds and their global lockdown. And, interesting, I'm just looking at it right now, 2020 uh, this is when they announced the global lockdown. It did not actually go into effect. Oh, I'll have to double-check. This might be an important date as well. The day of the first person who got vaccinated under these global mandates. I'll have to look that date up. 
I bet it was around March. <laughs> I bet it was very close to the Feast of Passover, but I doubt that it was exactly on the day of Passover. But it might have been at the beginning of the year of 2020. I'll have to look that up. I, I remember vaguely that it was sometime in March. And we began the uh, solar calendar, uh, well, uh, April, April 3rd, around April 3rd every year. I'm sorry, that's the day of Passover every year. The March is when the equinox happens, and that's two weeks before Passover. So it's like the third week of March. So I have to check the date. That that it was a black lady who volunteered to get the first jab, and so that jab is very well documented. All right, so let's continue with R. H. Charles and his discussion of the Book of Jubilees. So the book's origin. I'm going to correct his language to biblical language as I read along. Okay, so again, I can't stress this enough that we are at the very end. Okay, all right, 13 March, says Swamp Fox. 13 March 2020, they turned up the COVID scare. Okay, all right, Bavarian man says, tomorrow I will be 77 years alive on this world. All right, oh, lucky you. <laughs> I'm, I'm only 76, so I'm one year behind you. Okay, so. We have, I think we may live through this tribulation period. So 2020 plus seven, if we have seven years of tribulation, will be 2027. Okay, so 2025 may be the last gasp of the global dictatorship to try to impose their will on us. I'm convinced that they will try to invade America. They will have to invade America because they will not be able to take our guns away, period. It's not going to happen. So they will have to invade. It's going to be blue-helmeted UN troops. It's going to be uh, troops from the southern border disguised as Mexicans, right, with sombreros, right? And, uh, you know, looking like uh, poor people, but we know they're going to be well-fed and well-armed, and they're probably going to involve the Mexican drug lords and their henchmen. They're going to be, be paid to attack America. That's what they're going to do. And the blue helmets will be attacking from the north or from wherever. So, and then we're going to have, uh, <laughs> oh, okay, uh, Seven says, but the boy in Florida dreamed to 2024. Well, it's interesting, 2024 is the year of, uh, Jubilee, you know, without the, without the zero. So he was close. <laughs> he was very close. I've never put the two dates. What's, what's in 2024? We're in the middle of the tribulation. Okay. So 2025 is the end. So it's very interesting that uh, COVID and the 70th Jubilee are in the same time frame. Okay. Oh, yeah. And also, April 2024 is when the next eclipse in North America happens. And by the way, that is going to be happening on April 8th, which is within the Feast of Passover. So we're getting a lot of signs happening. Pinpoint, Jesus said, watch for the signs. All right. You better be able to read the signs in the skies of what's getting ready to happen. 
And boy, is it getting ready. It's been happening. We don't have to watch for any signs. But, of course, Yahweh said, uh, even Yahshua said, no one knows the exact day and the hour. didn't say anything about the month, week, or year. It's just an exact day and the hour. Nobody knows except the Father only. Okay? And uh, Bavarian Man says that uh, Europe's going to have an eclipse in 2026. That's very interesting. Okay, but America, the first one that happened in 2017, happened only on American soil, which is extremely rare for an eclipse to be affecting only one single country. The, the next one, that one came from the Northwest, hit seven cities named Salem. Seven cities named, there's the number seven again. <laughs> seven cities named Salem from Oregon, Salem, Oregon, to Salem, South Carolina. The next one is going to be coming from the southwest going northeast, and I've counted at least five Salems in that eclipse path, and there might be more. I just haven't had time to do all the research yet. But that adds up to 12, 12 symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. So, folks... It's heating up. It's heating up, <laughs> right? Yes, and Swamp Fox says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven, the uh, expanse of heaven, to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. There's all kinds of purposes for those lights in the heavens, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, so Bavarian is already making plans to go see that eclipse. So am I. But you got a long, you got a longer time to prepare. So it's going to be fun, folks. I'm going to encourage everybody in America to be, be somewhere where you can see the eclipse. The eclipse path is already set. It's going to go through Texas. There is a Salem, Texas that is going to hit. I believe there's a Salem, Arkansas. And a Salem, it's definitely a Salem, Illinois. It missed Salem, Illinois the first time. But it's going to hit Illinois the second time. There's a Salem in New York. And I can't, I believe there's a Salem in Ohio. So it's going to hit all those Salems. That's five. And we had the seven in 2017. So there's your number 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of these, you know, numbers that pertain to scripture are going to be activated. Big time, folks. Big time. So, we, and we've only got, let's see, well, th this is 20, 2023, the very beginning of 2023. So, we've got about three years to get our act together. Actually, uh, you know, only one year, actually, because 2024 is coming right up. So, we got a year and a quarter to be ready for that Passover day on the uh, big eclipse coming by. And then, of course, the intersection of those two eclipses is going to be right here in Illinois, uh, a town called Macanda, which is right near the New Madrid fault line, <laughs> okay? We can only speculate as to what that means, all right? Because that, actually, that site was actually the site of the biggest recorded earthquake ever in America, it happened, I believe, just before the uh, War of 1812, or right around that time, right around the War of 1812. Uh, there was one other eclipse 
a path that hit America just before the Civil War. Can we expect another civil war in America? Well, it's happening already, folks. It's happening already. So get your goggles. <laughs> get your uh, eclipse goggles ready. And if you're close to this eclipse path, then uh, for those of living in Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, Texas, uh, Oklahoma, you should be very close to the eclipse path. Okay, and so those in Ohio and Indiana, they will be in the eclipse path. Uh, it will actually hit the to- tail end, the west end of Kentucky. So, uh, but you're, that's going to be far away for anybody in eastern Kentucky. And for, for those in New York and Pennsylvania, you shouldn't be too far. Uh, and, and it's going to go through Maine, you know, through New Hampshire, etc. So a lot of Americans will be seeing that eclipse next year. So, this is getting exciting. Going to be fun, too. If you've never experienced an eclipse, just for the experience of the otherworldliness, because everything stands still. All wildlife stops. You won't hear a bird sing. You won't hear a cricket chirp. And all the white people will be standing around (laughs) amazed. And everything turns a light gray Forget about a blue sky. Everything turns to a light gray, and everything, all life forms stop when that eclipse happens. All right? It's an amazing experience. So let's get back to the Book of Jubilees and what Mr. Charles has to tell us about it. The Book of Jubilees is an important text for the student of religion. Without it, we could have inferred from Ezra and Nehemiah and the later chapters of Zechariah, the supreme position that the law had achieved in Judaism. No, not in Judaism, in Mosaism. That's the correct word, because Judaism is not the religion of the Old Testament. Judaism is the religion of the Talmud. So, had achieved in Mosaism. The Bible does not refer to itself as Mosaism or Talmudism or Judaism, it refers to itself as the Law and the Prophets. Those are the words that Yahshua used to describe the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Okay, but without Jubilees, we could hardly have imagined such an absolute supremacy as as is expressed in this book. This absolute supremacy of the Law carried with it the suppression of prophecy? I don't think so. I think that's a misreading of the book of uh, Jubilees. There's all kinds of prophecy. So I'm not sure what he means by suppression of prophecy. Or at least of the open exercise of the prophetic gifts. Well, of course, there really wasn't much prophecy given in those days, are understood as prophecy. The Torah has all kinds of prophecy in it, but mainly it's the law and the history of the Israelites leading up to the latter books, after the five books of the Pentateuch. There are all kinds of prophecy there, but a lot of it's not understood as prophecy. And so maybe Mr. Charles doesn't understand that either. These gifts, suppressed during the so-called silent period from Malachi down to New Testament times, now that, that would be uh, more accurate. 
because there was nothing happening. That's the intertestamental period. And the intertestamental period is kind of like a, a black hole <laughs> in the p- periods between the OT and the NT. Okay? But nevertheless, the book of, uh, you know, the, the apocryphal books that were written during that time are exclusively Israelite books, and there's all kinds of prophecy in them as well. For example, for example, Ezra, uh, first and second Esdras, where Esdras describes, uh, where he's asked the, he asks the angel the question, when will we know about the end of the age? When will this age end? And he says, the end of the age is when the Edomites are destroyed <laughs> and the Jacobites, the real Jacobites, the Israelites, the Israelites, will have their dominion, take, take our dominion back from Edom because we're living in that period when Edom has dominion over us, okay? So it's very apparent to me from just looking at this very first paragraph that R.H. Charles is a dispensationalist. Because he it appears to me he doesn't believe that the law should be taught in New Testament times. But let me read on and uh, figure this out. Okay. So he says, These gifts could find expression only in pseudepigraphic literature. No, they, well, pseudepigraphic is in, in addition to the Apocrypha, there are even uh, there are books that are are falsely signed by people pretending to be scripture, pretending to be written by Israelites. But the apocrypha are definitely one hundred percent Israelite literature. It's all about Israel. As, as this book, you can see that passages I just quoted about the prophecy of circumcision of the heart that reads like something out of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah prophesied the circumcision of the heart. Moses prophesied the circumcision of the heart. So it's in, as uh, the article by Bertrand Compare says, the New Testament is in the Old Testament, if we know how to read it. Okay? So let's continue. But though Jubilees represents a a triumphant manifesto of legalism, No, legalism and uh, and faith and uh, and works all oh, they all go together. There is no legalism in the Old Testament. The legalism that most people talk about is actually the Pharisaic legalism that occurred during New Testament times. No Judahite priest would consider it or call it legalism. We're supposed to obey the law. Period. It's not legalism for you to obey the traffic sign <laughs> that says stop, right? That's not legalism. That's simply obeying the law. Or if you go when it like turns red and stop when it turns green, you're going to cause an accident doing that. So, yeah, it sounds to me like he's a dispensationalist. And he believes that the Old Testament was consigned to Jews who are the premier legalists because they invent their own law. And he probably believes that the law is no longer in effect or somehow reduced in the New Testament. Anyway, this gives us a flavor of his theology. 
It also, that is the Book of Jubilees, also contained the element that was destined to reduce the law to a secondary position. No, it's not a secondary position. We're still supposed to obey the law. He's definitely a dispensationalist. This element is apocalyptic, which was the source of the higher theology in Mosaism, and subsequently gave rise to Christianity. <coughs> Excuse me. Where apocalyptic ce- apocalyptic ceased to be pseudonymous and became one with prophecy. Well, every Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled at some time or another. A lot of it was fulfilled in Old Testament times. And you could say that the that the crucifixion was an Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled in Old Testament times. But that's, of course, the line of demarcation between the Old and New Testament. But Jesus told us, if, if you obey me, if you want, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Yeah, so here again, we see the influence of dispensationalism and antinomianism uh, coming, you know, rearing its ugly head in Judeo-Christianity. So it's pretty obvious that this is where Mr. Charles is coming from, and knowing that, uh, we should read his translation with a skeptical eye, with an eye on that, so we get this right. Okay. All right, I'm going to have to excuse myself for a quick second or two. Okay, clear the airwaves, and let's continue. So we can see we always have to have a a sharp eye, an eagle eye, when reading any commentary by a Judeo-Christian. And even though his translations are excellent compared to others, he does point out in his translations, uh, you know, that the fact that the Edomites had converted to, well, actually that would be correct. The Edomites that were brought in under John Hyrcanus were converts to Judaism, right? But not, but not to Mosaism. Okay, those Edomites never practiced Mosaism. So you have to have precise definitions of words to have a historical understanding of what's really going on then and now. Okay. So, let's continue. It it is the history of the division of the days of the law and of the testimony of the events of the years, of their jubilees throughout all the years of the world, as Yahweh said to Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up to receive the tables of the law and of the commandment, according to the voice of God, as he said to him, quote, Go up to the top of the mount. The book was written in Hebrew by a Pharisee. I thought it was written by Moses. Maybe it was salvaged by a Pharisee. Between the year of the accession of Hyrcanus to the high priesthood in 135 and his breach with the Pharisees some years before his death sometime in the B.C. era. Okay, well, that's very interesting. I doubt the book was written by a Pharisee. Now, of course, before 
the Edomites were incorporated into the nation of Judea, there were only Judahite Pharisees. And it's not likely that the Edomite Pharisees were experts at Hebrew, but a Judahite Pharisee would have been an expert at at, uh, Hebrew. So maybe he is correct about this, but I don't think the book was written by a Pharisee. It was probably salvaged by a Pharisee, a Judahite Pharisee. So let me read this sentence again uh, with that understanding that I just provided. The book was written in Hebrew, possibly or salvaged by a Pharisee between the year of the accession of Hyrcanus to the high priesthood in 135 and his breach with the Pharisees some years before his death in B.C. Now, because it was under Hyrcanus that the Edomites took over the government of Judea and Herod slew all the Judahite Pharisees and the Judahite Sanhedrin and replaced them with his cronies. So it's quite possible that this Judahite Pharisee had a breach with the Herodian Pharisees and may have even become an Essene. We'll see. It is the most advanced pre-Christian representative of Midrashic tendency. No, that's not true because it's not, it's not Talmudic. It's not Jewish in any way, shape, or form, which has already been at work in the Old Testament Chronicles. Yeah, he's definitely a dispensationalist. As a chronicler had rewritten the history of Israel and Judah from the basis of the priestly code, so our author re-edited from the Pharisaic standpoint of his time the history of events from the creation of the publication, or indeed the republication of the law on Sinai. In the course of re-editing, he incorporated a large body of traditional lore, which the creative midrashic process had put at his disposal. No, what I'm th- what I'm thinking where he's wrong here is not midrash; it's the Jews who call their literature midrash. I'm thinking he may have picked up from the Aramaic targums. The Aramaic targums were our literature, not Jewish literature. So that's probably what uh, he's talking about here. And of course, everybody assumes that the Targums are Jewish literature. So there's another mistake the dispensationalists make. Okay? So what which crea- creative process had put at his disposal, and also not a few fresh legal enactments that the ex- exigencies of the past had called forth. Well, I highly doubt that anything in the Book of Jubilees is adding additional law, piling additional law onto the Mosaic Law. The only way to find out is to read through it and see if there's, with this in mind, I really doubt that there's any Midrashic literature contained in the Book of Jubilees. Okay, so, yeah, here, uh, my guess was correct. He says, his work constitutes an enlarged targum on Genesis and Exodus, in which difficulties in the biblical narrative are solved, gaps are filled, dogmatically offensive elements removed, and the genuine spirit of later mosaism infused into the primitive history of the world. Okay, so now that's possible. So I would say, yet this was, if such a 
Israelite Judahite scribe had a copy of because my understanding is this was written by Moses, not not by a later scribe. That he may have rescued the document and then added a lot of explanatory notes, right? Well, they didn't have footnotes in those days, so he just wrote it into the Aramaic Targum. So I think we can safely say that the Book of Jubilees is a Targumaic, Targumaic document. Okay. The author sought to defend Mosaism against the attacks of the Hellenistic spirit that had been in the Ascendant one generation earlier and was still powerful, and to prove that the law was of everlasting validity. Amen to that. From our author's contentions and his embittered attacks on the paganizers and apostates, now wait a minute, Moses, Moses attacked the apostates and the paganizers himself. We may infer that Hellenism had urged that the Levitical ordinances of the law were only of transitory significance. Yeah, that's what they that's what they insisted on. That they had not been observed by the founders of the nation. Yeah, no, we we are sinners, right? And that the time had now come for them to be swept away. And many Israelites did that. And for Israel to take its place in the brotherhood of nations, a position not unlike that espoused by St. Paul in the middle of the first century BCE. No. Paul never advocated that. Oh, he's an obvious dispensationalist. Big time. Our author regarded all such views as fatal to the very existence of Judahite religion and nationality. Yes, rightfully so. But it is not as such that he attacks them, but on the ground of their falsehood. The law he teaches is of everlasting validity. Yeah, how can you doubt that? Though revealed in time, it was superior to time. Before it had been made known to the fathers, I think it's fathers, I think it's R missing, known to the fathers, it had been kept in heaven by the angels. And to its observance, henceforward, there was no limit in time or eternity. That is correct. So he is saying, well, that's what the author of the book of Jubilees is saying. And that's the author's attitude, but that's not R.H. Charles's attitude, unfortunately. He actually believes that Paul taught against the law. Continuing. Writing in the palmy days of the Maccabean dominion, in the high priesthood of John Hyrcanus, he looked for the immediate advent of the Messianic kingdom. Well, any true Judahite would want in his or her heart to be rescued from that situation because those were probably the roughest times that Israel and Judah because there were still Israelites there certainly the roughest time that the Judahites have ever faced even rougher than anything that came before Exodus included because there was a lot of civil war among the Judahites in those days. And the priesthood utterly rebelled against the Mosaic law. The Levitical priesthood was, how should I put it, fat and lazy. And non-Israelites were taking the positions of the high priest. Yeah, those are really horrible times. 
It's as bad as today, <laughs> right? Okay. So they were expecting the first advent, and they were hoping for the first advent to get them out of their misery, like we are today. But in our case, it's the second advent. The good thing is, there was a first advent, right? This kingdom was to be ruled over by a Messiah, sprung not from Levi, i.e. from the Maccabean family, as some of his contemporaries expected, but from Judah. Yeah, well, that's a, that's always been the case. He's a, he's a Judahite of the line of David. This kingdom would be gradually realized on earth, and the transformation of physical nature would go hand in hand with the ethical transformation of man until there was a new heaven and a new earth. Right, it's very apocalyptic. Thus, finally, all sin and pain would disappear, and men would live to the age of 1,000 years in happiness and peace, and after death enjoy a blessed immortality in the spirit world. I don't know where he gets his 1,000 years from. Maybe that's contained in the Book of Jubilees. So if this is uh, a targomatic document, which he just suggested that it is, then perhaps by way of explanation, because that's what the targums were. The targums were recited to Judahites returning from the Babylonian captivity who had ceased to know Hebrew. So those Hebrew documents were translated into Aramaic for their Sabbath day worship. Okay? This does not mean that they tampered with the uh, documents. However, they could have added footnotes or explanations in Aramaic to explain to those no longer Hebrew-speaking Israelites what they meant. All right? So that's the essential nature of a targum. It's a translation from Hebrew into Aramaic with explanatory notes. Okay? Let's continue. Our book was known by several distinct titles, even in Hebrew, mainly as Jubilees, the Little Genesis, or the Apocalypse of Moses. So it goes by three different names. A. Jubilees appears to have been its usual designation as it divides into jubilee periods of 49 years, each the the history of the world from the creation to the legislation on Sinai. The writer pursues a perfectly symmetrical development of the heptatic system. That's number seven again. (laughs) Israel enters Canaan at the close of the 50th Jubilee. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, 120 Jubilees, folks. i.e. 2450. So he's got that wrong. We've found the correct date. It's 2025. Section B. The Little Genesis. The epithet little does not refer to the extent of the book, for it is larger than the canonical Genesis, but to its character. It deals more fully with details than the biblical work. The Hebrew title was variously rendered in Greek. Jerome, who was acquainted with the Hebrew original, called it microgenesis, spelled in Greek here, micro, M-I-K-R-O, microgenesis. C, the apocalypse of Moses is also an appropriate designation 
since it makes Moses the recipient of all the disclosures in the book. Yeah, because Moses wrote it, (laughs) right? Okay. The early date of our book, the 2nd century BC, and the fact that it was written in Palestine speak for a Semitic original. There you go, a Hebrew original. And the evidence for such an original is conclusive. Thank you very much. But the question arises, was the original written in Hebrew or Aramaic? Well, it's, it was written by Moses. That's that's all the traditions I'm aware of. It was written by Moses. And elaborated upon by Aramaic scribes. Certain proper names in the Latin version seem to suggest an Aramaic original. But in late Hebrew work written at the close of the 2nd century BC, the popular names of various objects would naturally be used. Moreover, in certain cases, like Jesus is used today, as opposed to Yahshua. Moreover, in certain cases, the Hebrew term may have already been forgotten, or when the tree had been lately introduced, been non-existent. But the arguments for a Hebrew original are weighty. A work which claims to be from the hand of Moses would naturally be written in Hebrew, for Hebrew, according to our author, was the sacred and national language. Further, the revival of the national spirit was, so far as we know, accompanied by a revival of the national language. And by uh, by Paul's own testimony, he understood and spoke Hebrew. So it was not a completely dead language yet. The book presupposes as its historical background the most flourishing period of the Maccabean hegemony, such that, as that under Simon and Hyrcanus. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about Simon. Uh, I thought Simon was a reprobate, but we'll, we'll find out. We'll discuss that in future episodes here. Don't have time to go into that right now. But Hyrcanus finally defeated the Edomites, but he, he violated the law by circumcising them and making them the citizens of Judea, which is a violation of making Covenants with Edomites and Canaanites. Total violation of the law. But since R.H. Charles is not an advocate of the law, he overlooks that fact. The conquest of Edom, which was achieved by the latter, that is Hyrcanus, is referred to in uh, 34, I'm sorry, 38.14. I think he's talking about Book of Jubilees? Or is he talking about the Bible? I guess he's talking about Jubilees. Again, our text reflects accurately the intense hatred of Judah towards the Philistines in the 2nd century B.C. and toward the Edomites as well. It declares that they will fall into the hands of the righteous nation. And we learn from 1st Maccabees and Josephus that Ashdod and Gaza were destroyed by Hyrcanus and Alexander Junius, respectively. But it is in the destruction of Samaria, which is adumbrated in the destruction of Shechem. Adumbrated means it's, it's not clear that Samaria was also destroyed during the destruction of Shechem. Chapter 30, verses 4 through 6, that we are to look for the true terminus aquo, Okay, for the transition from Old Testament Hebrew to intermediary Aramaic. 
the terminus aquo was the crucifixion. <laughs> now all accounts agree in representing the destruction of Samaria as affected by Hyrcanus about four years before his death. Hence we conclude that Jubilees was written between 109 and somewhere B.C. Okay, or transliterated would be a better way. Uh, it was written and transliterated by somebody who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic around this time, according to him. Okay, so we have a little time left. We can talk about the theology of Jubilees. Uh, so far, okay, maybe he was a Baptist. Yeah, <laughs> that could be, right? The, uh, Brother Aber says the acceptable year of the Lord is the Jubilee year. Release of all debts and servitude. Hey, hey, we'd all like that, wouldn't we? To be released from debt and servitude. How about it, folks? A reset. Oh, you know what? The timing of the globalists is perfect. They're calling for a great reset, are they not? They think they can offset or put off or avoid Yahweh's great reset altogether? Total liberty, folks. Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of Yahweh Elohim is upon me because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to turn them that are bound. Okay? Do you think the Rothschilds and Klaus Schwabstein are going to give us any sort of liberty? No. Their great reset is total slavery. Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Oh, man, this is getting weighty, folks. Luke 4, 19, to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh. Those are the exact verses from Isaiah that Yahshua used to proclaim himself the Messiah. That was his first sermon in a synagogue filled with Benjaminite Israelites. Okay, and actually they were a part of the house of Judah. Benjaminite Judahites. Okay, so folks, it's interesting that uh, our great reset, our anticipated reset, is coinciding with the Rothschild Great Reset. Which reset do you think is going to work? <laughs> all right? Folks, the, these end times prophecies are all coming together in our day. And these two eclipses, 2017 and 2024, are going to be very, very significant. Very significant. So, yeah, let's get the bells out. Let's get the uh, shofars out. <laughs> let's get the singers and dancers, because there's no prohibition against singing and dancing in the Bible, although some, some denominations frown upon it. We don't, not here at Eurofolk Radio. True Christianity doesn't. Although, you know, we don't make a big show of stuff. You know, the, I think the reaction of the Protestants to Catholic showiness, right, and having statues of saints and all that kind of stuff is uh, frowned upon by Protestantism, rightfully so. But, uh, yeah, singing of hymns and, and dancing, well, actually, you got all these holy rollers. <laughs> they're not dancing, they're rolling. 
they're rolling on the ground, right? So I, I bet some of us will be so joyful, we will roll on the ground. We'll be rolling in the aisles when that real jubilee comes, okay? So the Yobel year, that year of jubilee, occurs on the Day of Atonement. Yes, it does, because the jubilee years are declared on the Day of Atonement from one Day of Atonement to the next. So the first Day of Atonement was, I'm sorry, the first declaration of Year of Jubilee occurred in 1406 B.C. on the Day of Atonement. Yes, it goes from DOA to DOA. Uh, that means Day of Atonement to Day of Atonement. Okay, it's not a it's not a year that's counted as a as a you know calendar year. It's a sacred year from year 49 to the, the next year one. That so the the first year 49 from 1406 BC was the first year of jubilee. Okay, that that's how it's to be reckoned. So. We've got really firm evidence that that is the correct year. That's the year that Joshua entered the Promised Land. And that's the year that the Israelites began their feast day calendar. Okay? So, it is, and and there's a lot of confusion about that among the Judeo-Christians because they don't really care about what the Old Testament says, right? It says 50. It's a symbolic 50th year. There you go. That's a good way of putting it. It's not an actual calendar year. So, Given that we're up against it, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, that uh, the year 2025 is going to be that jubilee year. So we can anticipate in the Feast of Atonement in the year 2025 will be Yahweh's grand jubilee. 70 years, 70 jubilees from the entrance into the Promised Land. And 120 years from Adam? Is that how we're supposed to reckon this? Okay, 120 years. So, but nevertheless, 70 years from the entrance into the promised land by Joshua and the Israelites. Coming right up, folks. Coming right up. Get your, uh, get get your uh, food supplies ready. (laughs) Get your canned freeze-dried food ready because that might all you have have left for this coming jubilee folks the times are getting exciting thanks for listening praise Yahweh pass the ammunition good day everybody and have a Jew free day bye bye